brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts, offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Mountain Murders is an Appalachian true crime podcast. Listener discretion is advised. The show contains graphic language and depictions of violence. It may not be suitable for all audiences. We say fuck a lot. Hey guys, welcome back to Mountain Murders. I'm Heather. And I'm Scratchy Voice Dylan, I guess. Yeah, do you feel like maybe you're getting sick? Yeah, I tell you, I'm sick of fucking work. Is it an allergy type of thing? I don't know. You know how it is nowadays. I don't know if it's the Rona or if it's just something simple. So I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Damn. If I stop tweeting to people, they'll know that I'm I'm very ill. You don't tweet now. I know, but you know, that's the apparently that's the that's the barometer at this oh, moment. I was gonna say that's the metric. The metric. Yeah. That's the word I needed. <laughs> okay. Thanks for giving me that word. Well, Dylan, we all hope you feel better. Yeah, I'm okay. You have worked a lot. Yeah, it's a big shutdown at work. I don't know. I've lost track of how many 12-hour shifts in a row, not shifts. I was actually, when you said, I'm Dylan, I was going to be like, well, hey, stranger, because I feel like I haven't seen you in some days. Dude, my family doesn't even know me anymore. I mean, if we had a dog, it would bite me. It'd be it's like, true. oh, my God, there's a stranger in the house. I feel like a single mom. This is bullshit. But, you know, I'm fortunate to have a job. True. So I guess I can't complain too much about that, though I will if but, you give me a moment. But you will, exactly. Okay, so <laughs> uh, what's going on in your world? I don't even haven't even been here. I know, right? Well, I mean, it's been a great week. I had to take a mini road trip to Michigan. 
Uh, that's a grueling drive. A little turn and burn. So that was fairly exhausting at the beginning of the week. And then this weekend, this past weekend, I participated in the Coming Out Together Festival here in our hometown. Ooh. Mountain Murders had a table set up. Hopefully, we attracted some new listeners. We're going to give away tickets to a live show we have coming up at the Auditorium in Asheville. Oh, tell yeah. me more. So we're going to have a drawing, and we'll make that announcement soon and let our Mountain Murders listeners know who um, who is going to win these pairs of tickets. Yes, because we don't care who you do here at Mountain Murders, right? Can yeah. I say that? Yeah. Yeah, I don't care what you do. Yeah, I don't either. No, just do you live your best life. Fly that freak flag. Yeah, oh, baby. Unfurl it on me. What? The yeah, flag? The freak flag. Oh, you don't really have a freak flag. Yeah, I do. I'm not that vanilla. He has a vanilla colored flag. No, but my vanilla is very intense. It's like extreme it's, vanilla. It's just like a white surrender flag. No, it's like it's like... My vanilla is sponsored by Mountain Dew. You know, it's like do the vanilla. I don't huh? think so. Oh. So I saw I'm some stuff. I'm not really sure if people want to know about your vanilla flag. It's an extreme version. Or that you do the do. It's okay? an extreme version of vanilla, that's all I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, he's waving that vanilla flag while he bungee jumps. So yeah, I've been seeing course. some stuff. I, well, there's a lot in true crime news, it seems. Yeah, it's a lot coming out. What do you have for us? Well, you know, I did see, I'm not a, a super expert on the whole group of crazy people, but the Nixium, I think I'm saying that right? Yeah. The Nixium sex cult. There's been a rather large development in that. Clara Bromford, wait, shit. How do you say that? Clara, wait, okay. Butchering your name, Clara. It's Claire Bromfman. Okay. That's as close as I can come. She was sentenced to, um, eight, I think, 84 months in jail. Wow. For her support. Isn't she like an heiress or something? Yeah. See, that's the whole thing is she spent hundred uh, estimated over $100 million supporting the cult by uh, through litigation, you know, um, scaring people, intimidating people, paying people off. So they finally got a hold of her ass in court. Wow. Well, I think she deserved it. Well, yeah, but that's just surprising. You know, typically the uh, the wealthy get off with a little reprimand. What are you saying? Money talks? Yeah, it does. So I'm going to start a sex cult. You should. Yeah, and um, I just all the um, ladies and men who want to apply out there, I'm going to brand you right, be right beside your genitalia. Ouch. What? Who the fuck? I mean, really, people. Who Who allows this to happen? I feel bad for these people that were, you know, were on the receiving end of some of this um, mistreatment and bad things. But I'm just, I just don't get how you get there in your own head and personal life to where you would allow someone to do this just because they've been talking you up. Well, I feel like people have to accept some level of responsibility for their actions. I mean, actions. there's some personal accountability here. And yes, you went. It was a cult. I'm sure there's brainwashing and all that, but to an extent, like you're, you have to be responsible for yourself. And if you're a grown adult who can go to this workshop, it's a self help workshop, feel guys. better. And then from there, you, the next thing you know, you're giving them all your money and getting branded, like branded beside your genitalia on your pelvis. Yeah, I feel like you need to reevaluate some things. 
Yeah, and that's not saying anything about anyone out there. If you have a family member or something, maybe there's something we're missing, a point of view or something. So if anyone Isn't has a... one f- thing to be born into a cult? Yes. Where you don't have a choice? And you've been indoctrinated, exactly. indoctrinated since you were a kid. But it's another to just decide willy-nilly one day, like, you know what? I'm going to go join this guy who is telling me that an alien's spaceship is going to come take me and we have to get on a comet here wear these shoes and drink this juice i don't know i don't understand i just can't wrap my head around it but uh, i guess that's why i'm not in a cult i don't mean to offend if anyone has family members or knows someone's been a cult hit us up at mountain murders podcast at gmail.com love to hear the story maybe you can give us another perspective something else that's been a popular true crime subject this week is the netflix documentary american murder have you checked this out dylan now i'm thinking that i know that story isn't that the guy who well it's chris watts he killed his colorado he murdered his wife and two young daughters Hit him on the job side out yes. in the middle of nowhere. Yes. yes. So it's been a big true crime story for a couple of years now. This documentary, it's, I mean, I haven't seen it yet. I'm not even sure I want to see it. A lot of people I know have been talking about it. A lot of people in the true crime community. What's the tea? Well, they say it's like almost unwatchable or like the hardest thing they've ever watched. No way. Yeah. Now I have to watch it. What is the deal? Is it... His own words? Is it video? I mean, I I thought there was a lot of diaries involved in this one. I think there are, like, text messages, some of the final text messages. I think home videos, that kind of thing. So people are just saying it's very hard to watch. And I don't know. I've seen some news stories circulating that apparently Chris Watts is triggered by the Netflix documentary. Oh, that poor guy. Fuck him. Yeah, fuck fuck him. him. But yeah, um, so that's been a big thing. If you've seen the documentary, let us know what you think about it. Well, I got—I must say that that story—you know—it's been—you know—I saw it years ago, literally. It has always kind of stuck with me and disturbed me. Of course, I've seen many more since, and uh, a lot of them disturbed me. Just something about that one. Just, I mean... Well, I think family annihilators are always incredibly disturbing. I mean, I just don't... How do you do it? Yeah. I mean... You shouldn't kill anyone, but when your own children and uh, the mother of your children or or be it the father of your children, just I don't, which is very, I guess that's very rare. Women that take out the kids and the uh, husband or whatever. I don't know if I've ever even heard of that. Have you? Yeah, I think there's some out there. I mean, you've got like the Diane Downses of the world, but. Well, yeah, but I just don't, I don't get it. I don't get how you could just kill your whole family and then, like, move their bodies around and stuff and hide them, and it's just weird. Right. Well, we're into episode 103. 103, Dylan, can you believe it? Oh, my God. The big 103, right? And it's sponsored by Ivy, our newest patron, who happened to top out at our highest level. Thank you, Ivy. Man, Ivy comes storming back at the highest level. Shout out to you, Ivy. And if you're interested in joining us on Patreon, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. We post bonus content there, extra episodes, sometimes videos, photos. We have Discord chats. Go check it out. We have a, uh, all of our benefits listed, and I think it's some pretty good stuff. So maybe consider signing up on Patreon and uh, supporting our podcast. Man, we got to get a Discord chat going. I want to talk to our peeps. Are you ready? I am ready.
Okay, this is an interesting story, Dylan. Yeah, you told me you had one I'd never heard of. This is a story I'm hoping a lot of folks haven't heard. Well, give us the tea. The Slipper Slayer. Oh, really? Is the nickname given to a woman named Edith Maxwell. She's also known as the Hillbilly Girl of the Pine. That's a pretty long title. So starting in 1935, the public became obsessed with the young school teacher, Edith. And here's why. Edith was born April 24th, 1914 in Pound, Virginia. Ooh, so she literally lives in Pound Town. I knew you were going to make that joke. <laughs> I was waiting for it. I was shivering with anticipation. That's right. I've seen it. Patient. No, you um, should have waited a few minutes. Should I wait a little bit? I'm yeah. sorry about that delivery. So you, when you were first looking into this, right quick, you knew I was going to do a Pound Town I immediately joke. said, ah, Dylan is going to make yes. a Pound Town joke. Okay. Sorry. Let's because move on. inside he's 12. So she lives in Pound, which is an interesting name. She's from Pound Town, and she was born in 1914. And she's a tourist, April 24th. Um, Vir- <laughs> in Pound, Virginia, to Henderson Trigg Maxwell and his wife, Anne. Now, Edith had three sisters and a brother, and her father, Trigg, was a coal miner, and some reports stated a blacksmith. Trigg and Anne had married in 1904. They had grown up around Pound, so likely they'd known each other for most of their lives before they were married. Both came from what people would consider good pioneer stock. Oh, wow. They could both trace a few generations back to the early settlers of the region. The couple was given some acreage, family land, at a place they called Bold Camp. But the young married couple found life was different. Their relatives were kind of able to survive being farmers and homesteaders. But at this particular time, things were starting to change. They were introducing automobiles and new farm equipment, and they were commercializing farming a bit more. It wasn't just about self-sustaining, raising your family, and maybe earning a little extra money. It was becoming more of an industry. So some of these small farmers were starting to kind of get closed out of that agriculture business. Well, it's on the front side of the Industrial Revolution, right? And so like, you're getting uh, the first look at automation and, you know, people being replaced and uh, things just getting in, in the beginning of the death of the family farm. And Trigg earned his living as a farmer until Edith was six years old. And this is when the family abandoned farm life to move to Jenkins, Kentucky, where Trigg started working in the coal mine. In Jenkins, the family felt like they were in the big city. They'd come from Bold Camp, incredibly rural. Pound was described as a village. So they were living on basically the frontier, kind of. I mean, just that type of life at the very, you know, at least. Family lands, lots of acreage. You just scratch neighbors miles away. Scratch out. A living, uh, you know, a self-sustained family. You take care of yourself, do for yourself. Right. So when they moved to Jenkins, which, you know, had a decent-sized population at that time, I believe it might have been about six or 7,000 people, they thought they were in, like, the big city. Well, I guess so. Edith started school. She made friends, played normal games, and she was kind of a tomboy but very close with her mother. However, Anne and Trigg often found themselves at each other's throats. Fighting was not unusual. Trig Maxwell was reportedly quite conservative and domineering. He and Anne had many scuffles. 
Trigg was also an alcoholic who would grow violent towards his wife, then shift blame to his kids, especially Edith. Trigg Maxwell kept his daughter Edith under such harsh scrutiny that she wasn't even allowed after dark, like, to go outside. Not, period. Like, can't once, go out the door. once it was dark, you can't leave the house. Okay. And this prompted folks to say she'd never seen the moon. Well, that's strange that he did that to the degree that other people knew about it. The, and this is going to be adopted later for a book entitled Never Seen the Moon, The Trials of Edith Maxwell by Sharon Hatfield, which I did use as a resource for today's episode. But that that kind of was the long-running joke is, oh, she's never even seen the moon because her daddy was so strict. Okay, Dad, what's up? Edith would later recall when she was about seven years old, she watched her father try to whip her older brother, Earl. Now, instead, Earl knocked Trigg to the ground and the following morning, Trigg gave his son a thrashing. Earl packed his bags, left home, and didn't return for several years. So Earl got out on Trigg's ass. So the older son is just like, fuck this, I'm out. Well, it sounds like a, um, Trigg's a little heavy-handed, and it's, you know, you listen to me or else, you know, his way or else. And, uh, yeah, as soon as children get the opportunity to get away from that, they're typically gone to. By 1927, Trigg moved the family back to pound gonna make a joke no i think our listeners are mature um sensible people and i don't think they want more than one pound town joke what about a flavor town joke but i will say that it just seems like trig decided to go back to pound town yeah he did so pound virginia is nestled in the heart of the blue ridge mountains in wise county which is right on the virginia kentucky border it's an incredibly rural area, even today. Pound is only about 2.6 square miles of land. So again, they called it a village. It wasn't like a town or a city. It was very small. And during the 1930s, there may have been more people residing in Pound, but now the population has fallen to around 900. Oh, today? Yes. But in the 30s, they had you know, more jobs. There was the coal mining industry, that type of thing. So you had more people living there. And this is an interesting fact about Pound. Apparently, the town council adopted an ordinance against dancing without a permit. And when the town turned down a permit in 1999, the federal courts got involved and ruled it unconstitutional. So take that, Kevin Bacon. You can't stop me from dancing. I gotta, I gotta find a warehouse. I'm gonna frustratingly dance. I just need to dance it out. Oh my god! Yeah, that's <laughs> a great movie. Our story takes place two years after prohibition is lifted, and at this point, like I mentioned, Pound is kind of flexing. Farmers and coal miners have flooded this village. There were several popular drinking spots where a person could grab a whiskey drink, listen to some fiddle music, and have a good time. Well, I enjoy evening like that. I think we need a fiddle. Fiddle whiskey drinking night out. You think so? I think so. Well, if you're going to play in Texas, you got to have a fiddle in the band, Dylan. That's true. Okay. Wise County is hardcore Appalachia, is, is basically what I'm trying to paint the picture of here. In high school, Edith had been a really good student. She was tall, becoming a standout basketball player. When she was in the eighth grade, she had already earned a spot playing like on the high school team. Oh, wow. Yeah. Edith was a voracious reader. She starred in school plays. And like most kids, Edith had a dream. She wanted to be a nurse. 
However, her parents felt if she wanted to be a quote-unquote professional, a teacher was the only suitable career. You just got to let her do what she's interested in, man. Come on now. So it was decided by her parents that Edith would, in fact, become a teacher. Edith attended college at Radford State Teachers College, about 150 miles north of Pound. Edith managed to scrape together the $700 for tuition. She had was able to borrow some money, and she had about $350 to start, but the other $350 she needed for the tuition, um, she ended up having to like take out some loans and that kind of thing. But Edith found herself painfully shy when she was in college. She was living in a city of nearly 6,000 people, and she was a country girl. She felt shabbily dressed. People made jokes about her accent, where she came from, would ask her things like, oh, did you have to get up and slop the hogs this morning? Why are humans so mean to each other? I don't get it. You know, people, anytime there's someone who's a little bit different or something, it's like they were, you know, even... Some people are nicer about it. They might say stuff and don't even realize they're offending them, but then you got the full-blown bullies. But I just don't understand why humans do that to each other. Just, you know, want to pick and and prod and be mean to a person. I just can't live my life like that. Well, that's the thing. You're in college. Edith is in college, and she's paid the same amount of money to attend the college that you have, regardless of where she comes from. Yeah, I mean, it's So what makes you think you're better than her? Yeah, she made it in the same school. She's doing the same stuff you're doing. It's just human nature to a degree. It doesn't make sense. But as you can imagine, you know, Edith struggled to kind of find her place in college. Had those insecurities. She felt like a country bumpkin. I'm sure it was tough. But she does well scholastically. Even though she didn't particularly want to be a teacher... When she graduated, Edith had hoped to move on to greener pastures, but she felt this obligation to her parents, and she reluctantly agreed to return to Pound. Oh, there's just doesn't sound like there's going to be a lot of opportunity there in Pound. No, and her older brother Earl, who lived in New York City. Oh, he's up there at the salsa factory. He had tried to talk her into going someplace else. He was like, you need to get away from that place. I promise once you do, like, life's going to be so much better for you. You know, blue skies, greener pastures, move along. Success, you'll meet someone. She didn't listen, though, did she? Well, she just felt this obligation to her parents. And by 1935, the 21-year-old Edith was working as a school teacher, having finished her first year teaching in the public schools in Wise County. She was living at home with her family. It seemed since she had gone to college, her parents expected that she contribute her fair share to the family. So during this time, Wise County had found itself struggling with the Great Depression. So Edith considered herself lucky to even have a job. Edith was bringing in about $65 a month, and her father was bringing about $18 a week at the coal mine, which was pretty good money for that time. So in a weird way, her parents pushed her into a profession that could help weather the start of the Depression, which is kind of funny. She was a popular teacher. Students would bring her tokens of their appreciation in the form of frying chickens. Oh, that must be a a pretty good sign of admiration there around Wise County. It was. She paid her parents $6 a week towards bills, toward the bills. Uh, Life in Pound was not incredibly exciting for this young woman, but she managed to find a bright young set. 
some girls who were influenced by the flappers and young people who wanted to have intelligent conversations. Going around on Saturday night in a car without a chaperone caused a lot of gossip, and apparently Edith would push the limits of what was acceptable. Wow, how far we've come. You know, used to people, they uh, strove to have an intelligent conversation with someone. That's not that's not so true nowadays, right? With the social media and such. No, but I imagine imagine when you're living somewhere like Pound, some someplace that's really small, and you don't have a lot of social interaction except with kids in your class, maybe your parents. You probably crave that. And she's just got, come from college, where I'm sure she was exposed to a lot of people who were having you know interesting conversations and discussing politics and who knows. Well, yeah, and she's uh, enjoys reading and things like that, and so if you're able to discuss your ideas or you know these some of this stuff with people and they may have read some of the same things and stuff like that I guess that would be pretty exciting plus don't you think that when you're kind of young like when you're in your 20s you're so idealistic about like the way the world should be and you're bright-eyed and you think like we're all gonna change the world I don't know I've been fairly cynical my entire life have you I think so I think I had a did you a have that? of optimism, I was going to say, yeah, you don't strike me as that bright-eyed, bushy-tailed kid. You know, now, you know, isn't it funny? Now here we are at 40 or so, and uh, you see these kids, or you hear them somewhere, like in a restaurant or something, talking, and you're just like, fuck, dude. You just wait till life kicks you square in the teeth. I hope you like the taste of blood, bitch. In my former job, which was working in radio, we would have a lot of interns, college interns that would come in or, um, you know, young people who would apply for internships. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification to individualized coaching services to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. And so my job often was to manage those interns. I would interview them and choose an intern and then kind of manage and oversee their workload. Yeah, it's it's cute. It is cute. And then I find myself being such a bitch because they'll be like, oh, well, I'm getting this um, communications degree and I'm going to go work for CNN and I'm moving to Atlanta and they have all these big dreams. Yeah. And you're just like, yeah, you'll be lucky if you get a job at all in your field and you're probably going to make $10 an hour. Yeah. And have to pay hundreds of dollars a month in Loans, S student, student loans. loans. Yep. So yeah, good luck with that. I hope you can say, "Would you like fries with that?" Because well, you're probably going to need a second job to cover your bills. Maybe some of them work at CNN now. Yeah, yeah I bet. <laughs> probably not. Dude, I have to tell you, I had one of the interns who didn't do a great job, 
like she was probably the worst intern I've ever had. She was incredibly lazy and competent. So I let her professor know that I was displeased with her performance. Of course, professor wants to have a meeting. Me, professor, intern. Okay, I agree to this. Intern brings grandma to the meeting. Oh, no, she didn't. Yeah. So instead of being and going into a meeting and being like, I need to. I'm acting like an adult or a professional. Act like my, an adult, you know, argue my side if I disagree with what's being said or explain myself if I know that I've been lacking in some areas. You bring your grandma and just let grandma, like, tell her about, you leave my granddaughter alone. That was exactly what grandma was saying. Like, she's a good girl and a hard worker. Wow. Yeah. That's not a good sign for Anyway, that yeah, youth, it's wasted on the young, right? Okay, so yeah. <laughs> so she's found some friends, kicking it around, but she sounds seems to be um independent minded. Like she's not gonna do what's expected of a woman all the time. That's a great way to describe Edith, I believe. When Trick was sober, he was considered to be good and kind to his family, but when he was drinking, he was quarrelsome, cruel to his family, and just unreasonable to deal with. On Saturday, July the 21st of 1935, Trick Maxwell had left his home for most of the day. So he's gone pretty much the whole day. And when he returns home, it's about 10.30 p.m. So gone all day, comes home, stumbles in, and his wife and their 12-year-old daughter, Mary Catherine, they were at the house, and they were in bed. When Trigg entered the home, he switched on the light. He starts launching into a tirade. So immediately, mother and daughter are like, oh. oh my God, here's this drunk asshole. Daddy's drunk. He's been gone all day. They've had to do everything around the house or if they have any animals to keep up. You know, even cooking dinner was a chore back then, a big-time chore. And so here's this asshole. It's late at night. Everybody's tired. Here he comes busting in, been off doing whatever he wanted, starting his bullshit. He questioned his wife's whereabouts all day, asking Anne where she had been berry picking. That's what she'd been doing all day. And he was demanding to know exactly where she had picked berries and then asked if she was planning to go again the following day on Sunday. Anne would later say he was just belligerent drunk, right? And at some point during the conversation, Trick tells her she has to leave the next day. That in the morning, when I wake up, you'll have 30 minutes to get your shit and get out of the house. Okay, Trig. And believing her husband to be in another one of his just drunken fits, she urges him, you know, you need to go back to bed and sleep this off. Thinking it's all going to be well the next morning. But Trig declines the invitation to sleep, instead leaving the house again. Anne and Mary Catherine retire to bed once more. Now, around 12.30 a.m., Trigg returns home, and he's furious that his 21-year-old daughter, Edith, has not made it home yet. Damn, Trigg. This dude needs to go to sleep. He needs to get somewhere and get still. Exactly. During his outburst, he screams, a man ought to take a club and break her neck. About his daughter. Okay, that's pretty crazy. I mean, who would even say that carrying on? And try to calm him down, suggesting once again, go to bed. Trigg refused to sleep and demanded uh, to know where Edith was and said he was going to take care of it. He was going to deal with her. She would be sorry 
for rolling up in this house so late or early, I guess, depending on, you know, it's 1230. Around 1 a.m., a car drives up. Edith says goodbyes, heads into the family's modest home. And I should mention, this is a really small house. It's basically four rooms. It had been, like, partitioned into two apartments. So, like, the Maxwells lived in one part of it that had four rooms. And then on the other side of it, from what I can understand, was rented out as a post office because their eldest daughter was the postmaster. Oh, wow. So that's where they had the post office. So from what I understand, again, there are four rooms. Trick and Anne sleep in one bedroom. Mary Catherine has a bedroom. Then there's the kitchen and the living room. And Edith would sleep on the sofa in the living room area. So when Edith walks in, her sister Mary Catherine greets her with whispers. She's like, Dad's drunk. He's, you know, he's in a mood. And he and Mary Catherine warns Edith not to go bother him because he took her bed linens. So Edith would leave her bed linens and blankets and pillow and all that kind of folded up and she would like tuck it under the couch at night. She'd get it out. So he's taken her bedroll basically and gone into his room and closed the door. Oh, and so Mary Catherine's like, look, don't even worry about it. You know, don't say any, just don't bother him. Yeah, don't even basically, sleep, yeah, don't just wake be him quiet. Up, yeah. Just, you know, okay. sorry, I'll share a blanket with you, that kind of thing. But Trig, as I mentioned, he'd take, taken Edith's stuff into his room, and this was like a punishment for her staying out late. And Mary Catherine encouraged her, rather than wake Dad to get the linens, just go to sleep. It's for the best. But Edith was not having this. She marches into her parents' room to fetch her bedding. She's like a bitch got to sleep. Well, she's like, this is ridiculous. You know what I mean? I mean, come on, people. Are you kidding me? Chant Kelly was a neighbor who lived next door, and he was still awake after 1 a.m. when he heard a commotion at the Maxwell residence. Kelly heard shouting, loud voices. He heard Trig and Edith. The family appeared to be in a fight. And in a couple minutes, Kelly hears Trig calling out, Oh, Lordy. Oh, Lordy. Oh, my God. Kelly then sees a partially dressed Edith run out of the house calling to her younger sister to please bring her clothes and shoes. So by this time, Kelly thought perhaps someone was injured or there was an emergency. So he walks over hoping that he can render some aid. And he is met by Edith outside, just outside of the the family home. There's a porch. Sounds like it might have been kind of like a screened-in porch. And so she's kind of out there trying to, you know, put her clothes on. And so he walks up and she's like, oh, everything's fine. Dad's drunk. This is not anything unusual. This happens. Just go on home. Everything's fine. Everybody's okay. Don't worry about it. Yeah. So Kelly returns back to his house. And as soon as he walks in the door, he hears the radio blaring at the Maxwell house loudly. Like someone's turned the radio on and they have cranked it up as loud as it'll go. And the radio plays for about 10 minutes, so it drowns out any other noise coming from the Maxwell house. Then there's silence. Okay, now at this point, if you're the neighbor, you're just going to be like, what the hell are those people doing tonight? This is weird. What's going on? Around 30 minutes later, Mary Catherine ran to the Kelly residence calling out for help. When Chant Kelly answers the door, Mary Catherine says her father is dying. She needs some help. Another neighbor named Martha Strange and a boarder named Lovell Sowards, they wake up as well, and they start to follow Mary Catherine and Chant over to the Maxwell house. Inside, they discover Trigg, who, by the way, is described as tall, 
and vigorous. I mean, he does do manual labor for a living, so he's a pretty big, beefy guy, right? He's lying in the doorway leading from the kitchen to the porch with his head about 30 inches from a meat block. And he's wearing only his underclothing, which consists of thermal underwear and a pair of socks. So he's unconscious. Kelly tries to revive him and begins performing what they said was respiration exercises on Trig. Oh, wow. I wonder what that consisted of before they got the you know modern day set going. Yeah, this is like, I guess, an early version of CPR. So he works on him for a while, but after about 15 minutes, Trig expires. While this is happening, Edith is sent for a doctor. She fetches Dr. E.L. Sykes, the village physician. Dr. Sykes returns to the house and he assesses the situation. He's checking Trigg's vitals and he can see that Trigg has like a wet head, but it's it's bleeding. So it's a wound. So it's a head injury. Initially, Dr. Sykes is thinking, okay, if he's drunk, he fell down, he could have very well knocked himself out. By about 2 a.m., Trig Maxwell is dead. We've got the doctor. We've got, you know, kind of a crowd starting to form here. Neighbors, everyone's standing around. People are out in the yard asking questions. What's going on? Well, around three hours after he is pronounced dead, a police officer happens to drive through the neighborhood. He's a, a Virginia State Trooper, and his name is Warren Orr. And he travels through the neighborhood, and he's waved down by Mary Catherine. She tells him that her daddy died and asks if he can come inside to check things out. So Warren's like, okay, and obliges. He goes in the house. He has a conversation with the doctor. Dr. Sykes is satisfied that the cause of death was accidental. So around 6 a.m., by this time, they've got the funeral home coming over to pick up Trigg's body. Now, in the meanwhile, in the meantime, Relatives have been contacted in a crowd. As I mentioned, they've been they've been gathering outside the Maxwell house. There's friends, town folks, nosy neighbors. Everyone's just kind of casually chatting about this odd turn of events. When Chant Kelly begins telling everyone, he heard a racket before Trigg died. Uh-oh. He tells them that he had seen Edith running around outside half-dressed. Oh, law mercy. He tried to help, but she turned him away. And this is when people start doubting Edith and Anne's story that Trigg died after suffering a fall. Dr. Sykes is talking to people too, stating that, well, Trigg did seem to suffer a lick to the head. Oh, so now everybody's getting caught up in the gossip. By then, Trigg's parents have shown up and they start demanding an autopsy. Anne doesn't want an autopsy, but her in-laws insist. So the mortician is a man named King, and he takes the body, and he embalms Trigg as soon as they get to the funeral home. He then later examines the body. So performs this autopsy after he's embalmed the guy. Okay, that's weird. Yeah. He notes three wounds on the head. The first appears to be a fairly clean cut about three quarters of an inch deep and they say it extended down the scalp like to the bone like through the head so So, this is like a pretty deep cut yeah that's a bad injury however the skull isn't fractured one of the wounds was on the left side of the head there was another on the right there were not it i mean it wasn't like they were so much cuts but i guess they kind of were like cuts but they described them as like having severe bruising around them Okay. But not so much like open wounds. 
So maybe like a almost like a blunt force trauma with not a whole lot of power behind it. Yeah, that meant, yeah, that would because you have no fracture. Of I was the trying skull. to figure out like a way to describe it because they were saying, oh, it wasn't so much cuts, but right. like kind of a gash, but with bruising, but it wasn't like bleeding. Yes, sounds yeah. like maybe a lick from a woman. Oh yeah, from a, a smaller woman, a slot woman. What? A little short woman. What are you- is that a fat joke? Oh, my God. Okay. I I saw, like I said slight. You know, I don't like you. I didn't say nothing about fat short girls. He... <laughs> I'm very triggered. Don't talk about me like I'm not here. I just knew that would bring it out. He had a bruise above the nose. Both of his eyes appeared to be black and swollen. He had bruises on his forearms and a cut on his finger. So, we've got this body embalmed before the autopsy, which sounds like probably not a great idea. Well, I think back then it may have been a move to preserve. Because, I mean, they were really into embalming was like the best thing since sliced bread. The examiner concludes that Trigg died from a brain hemorrhage caused by the wound that was above the forehead, the one that had cut to the bone. Sheriff Adams of Wise County had a busy weekend. On the same Saturday night, he was handling another murder. Out of the ordinary, strange, right? Two murders in one night. Well, yeah, in this small little village or town community. Well, I should say two deaths in one night. Yeah, I'm sure that's rather strange. Saturday night, he was handling another murder. On the night in question, a man named Orban Baldwin was killed by his wife, The mother of six shot him. So he's kind of late to the game on this Maxwell situation. He arrives back at the sheriff's office fairly early, the early morning hours. And when he arrives, I mean, he's been out all night. It's a murder scene. I'm sure he was, like, exhausted. He was spent. But he's met by Trig Maxwell's parents. They explain the situation. Our son is at the funeral home. They're performing an autopsy. Here's what we know. And they want to swear warrants out on Edith and Anne. Okay, so they're just demanding some kind of justice for the death of their poor son. By 11 a.m., Sheriff Adams arrives at the Maxwell home with two warrants in hand. He arrests a frail 48-year-old Anne Maxwell and her 21-year-old daughter Edith and charges them with murder. So, wow, that's interesting. The sheriff had that power. He didn't have to go through the prosecution or the DA or anything like that. Interesting. During the interrogation, Edith says to investigators, it's a sight to be accused of something like this. I'm a teacher. I keep them up, like talking about her parents. But the officers told her the scene hinted at signs of violence. When officers arrived on the scene, the floor had been mopped. They found dried blood spots in Trigg's bedroom. They found burned remnants of a man's shirt in the cook stove. A blood-stained pillowcase and sheet were found stuffed into the bottom of a banana crate on the porch. The meat block where Trigg supposedly hit his head was clean. Not a trace of blood or hair. Uh, well, I mean, from an investigator's standpoint, the sheriff's standpoint, or anyone else, that doesn't look good. I mean, that doesn't look good. The only thing baffling police was if these women had, in fact, murdered Trigg, what was the murder weapon? An officer did find an electric iron that had a bit of blood dried on it. Now, without any actual facts... The next day, which is July the 22nd, the Knoxville Sentinel reported Trigg's murder, stating that he'd been beaten to death with an electric iron. 
Nice. But authorities didn't even know how Trigg was killed. Right. Like, That's just right. What little bit of conjecture. So the newspaper is already like taking the story and running with it. Imagine that. What police eventually learn is that when Edith went into her father's room to procure the bed covers, he began muttering to himself and kind of making a stink. Edith then went into her sister's room. Trigg follows her into Mary Catherine's room. He's threatening to whip Edith for having stayed out late. Edith tells him she had been out with her first cousin, Trigg's nephew. And this is when he begins attacking her. He dragged her into the kitchen. He picks up a chair as if he's going to hit her with it. She orders him to put the chair down. Then he grabs a butcher knife. Edith managed to wrestle the knife away. He drops it on the floor. Mary Catherine grabs the knife. She takes it, hides it behind a clock, which I'm assuming is maybe like a grandfather clock. Sounded like it was a, a large clock. Now, in the meantime, Trigg grabs Edith by the hair. He's dragging her around the kitchen. They're knocking over a pail of water, kitchen utensils, pots and pans. At some point, Edith gets away from him and starts trying to run toward her mother's room. But Trigg grabs her by the neck and then he pushes her over a chair. She falls on the floor and she felt something at her back. So when she reaches for it, it's a shoe. She grabs the shoe and begins striking her dad with it several times. In the head? Yes. Okay. Now, as soon as her father released his grip, you know, he's got her by the neck. She runs outside the house. Her clothes had been torn from her body. And this is when she had asked Mary Catherine for clothes. And that's when Chant Kelly, the neighbor, like sees her running half naked out of the house. And she's yelling, bring me my clothes and shoes. Yeah, I mean, it had been great if she was like, yeah, my dad's went crazy and he just attacked me, you know. But I think back then especially people were worried about what the neighbors thought or maybe she thought that would make it worse. Maybe he'd had a physical outburst before and, you know, put his hands on her and she was trying mm -hmm. to smooth it on over. Well, and I think back then, Dylan, a lot of people just didn't care. Well, and, and that's the thing, The attitude too. was, well, he's the man of the house. If he wants to smack his wife around or beat his kids, that's not our business. Well, there's that part. So I think there was that certain attitude that, you know. Hell, that attitude exists to this day. You're, like, not going to get any help for domestic violence or child abuse, right? Well, inside, Mary Catherine and Anne had tried to quieten Trigg down. They had lured him back to bed. Anne sees Trigg bleeding from his head. So she kind of grabs like a wash rag, starts cleaning the wound. Mary Catherine flies in on the kitchen. She's mopping up this bucket of water that was spilled during the altercation. She's mopping up blood spots. Anne tosses her husband's bloody shirt into the stove along with some powdered carbine, which he had overturned. Okay. So about 30 minutes later, everyone is in bed hoping to forget the incident. When Trigg wakes up, he needs a drink of water. Anne heard him go out to the porch, and then she hears a loud thud. He had fallen down. She jumps up. By this point, she and Edith have made their way out to, like, the back porch area. And they find him lying in the doorway, which leads from the kitchen to the porch. And his head is near the meat block. Okay, so he's done fell out. So they think he's hit his head. During the interviews, interrogations... Edith asked that her uncle, who was an attorney, be present, but she was denied this by the district attorney. Questioning continued without any sort of representation for Edith. 
By July 24th, the district attorney says that Edith has admitted to beating her father with a shoe after he'd threatened to whip her for staying out late. A grand jury is presented with information that is given by the three Maxwell women, the autopsy reports, and they hear from investigators who are sure that the concealed bloody bed covers is a sign of foul play. So they quickly return indictments for Anne and Edith. Anne is able to post her bail, which was $3,000, and she manages to go home where she's confined to bed due to emotional distress. Edith's bond is set much higher at $6,000. Wow. So there was no way that she was going to be able to come up with that. This also suggested to folks that the judge felt she was more culpable or capable of flight than her mother. Yeah, I think there's one thing we should uh, discuss there briefly is the fact that shoes back then were a lot heavier. They were likely handmade, wooden, kind of a wooden bottom. So, you know, at first you're like... when Yeah, you they first, had to be very durable. Well, yeah. A lot of people only got, what, like maybe one pair of shoes every year or so? Yeah, they weren't. When you first hear this, some people might be like, oh, you know, she hit them in that, but these shoes are way heavier it's going to have sharp edges around the sole area and stuff. So, yeah, it is. You could whack somebody in the head with a shoe, and it sounds to me like maybe some brain swelling or internal bleeding in his brain or something happened from those strikes, and I think he deserved it. I don't care if he was in a drunken stupor or whatever. He's a violent asshole, and he was attacking his daughter, and he deserved to be hit in the head with a shoe. I don't think her intention was to kill him. And then I think... Why did they not just say, hey, look what happened. This is what happened. But what you what you spoke of a minute ago is why. Because the, the men in the town and the men on the possible jury and things like that are not, they're going to look at this from the male point of view. Well, that's the thing back then. They're not going to give you self-defense. so many of these cases where women are implicated right. as the murderer, especially, you know, before a certain time period. There was no, like, self-defense excuse. Right. It just seemed like, even if you were saying, I did this in self-defense, that any kind of uh, violence or, or, you know, whatever against a man, it was automatically like he was the poor victim. and Or you're going to have to have what you deserved another, and how dare, yeah. another man to witness the event for you to have any, I think, someone respected or what believable to even have a chance at a self-defense. But as far as a woman's version against, you know, what happened and no one else knows, they're never going to, they're not going to do it because everybody was sexist assholes. Well, just like an episode we did many episodes ago (laughs) about Frankie Silvers. Well, that's what I was thinking. You know, she had claimed to have been abused. And she also tried to cover it up. And I think there's reasons for that. I mean, it's because they know they don't have a, a chance in hell of winning a self-defense or their what really happened or stories of abuse and things. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. 
At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Things like that being recognized. Media grabs hold of this story and they go berserk. Well, see, that's the thing. That's, that's the very thing right there. Newspapers ate up this story. Stereotypes start emerging. These newspaper reports are painting this picture of poor Appalachia. You've got hillbillies who wore bedruggled clothing. They have feuds. They kill each other in violent ways. Here's this girl murdering her own father. Well, this was a bad, this was kind of a dark time for media, I think. I mean, you, you can say that nowadays, too. But with the sensationalism, and they realized that, you know, the headlines could sell, you know, the um, could sell stories. I mean, r- reporters would not report the facts. They would get a couple of facts, and they would literally create a fictional story from those facts. Yellow journalism. Yellow journalism. So I could imagine this was splashed all over regional papers, you know, and people. This picked was picked up by national newspapers. Yes, exactly. And and hold that thought, okay? Because we're going to get into that in a second. Journalists painted Edith as the lonesome pine girl, the hillbilly girl, and called her America's sweetheart behind bars because she had curly hair, was photogenic. Okay, murderous footwear abounds. The slipper slayer. Ah, see now, I forgot about that. Edith's brother Earl, as I mentioned at the beginning of the story, he lived in New York City. Reporters started making up stories about mountain justice, speculating that once Earl returned from the city, he would murder his sister to seek vengeance for his father. Okay. But Earl did absolutely nothing of the sort. Earl did return to Pound, but as Edith's biggest defender, he had been a great big brother, taking Edith on trips to Detroit, Chicago, even at some point buying her an evening gown. He knew his dad's tendencies. It's the very reason he left town. Earl goes to work. He launches a vigorous public relations campaign, hires attorneys, fundraises for his sister's defense. Earl even negotiated a contract with Hearst News for exclusive rights to Edith's story. Wow. So as we've got Hearst, king of yellow journalism. Yeah, Hearst and Pulitzer. Very, very famous rivalry there. During the trial, the prosecution painted Edith as a girl who hated her father. They claimed Edith willfully premeditated his murder. Witnesses testified that Edith was frequently reprimanded by her father for what he considered improper conduct in staying out late at night with men. She drives in her car by herself, no chaperone. He often threatened to whip her for this behavior. Edith resented being treated this way by her father, and some testified Edith had a very defiant attitude, often making wild and unguarded remarks against Trigg, like saying, I'll kill you. But these comments seemed to be kind of forgotten once the fight had passed. It was just like in the heat of the moment when they were having these fights. So it wasn't like Edith was going around telling people, I'm going to kill my dad. I wish he would die. Right. It was more like they were mad and screaming at each other. Heated words. Exactly. Yeah. Some of Edith's own friends said the woman would joke around about what her father might say or do for punishment because she was out late at night or driving around with men. 
So her friends were like, you know, this was so common. And she would just kind of joke like, oh, you know, what's going to happen to me when I get home? Yeah, that's, that's crazy. These threats that Edith made were all within like a year leading up to Trigg's death. So all the witnesses who testified, they had heard her make these unguarded remarks, threatening to kill him, that had only been the last year. So basically, after she graduated from college, she returned back to Pound, started teaching. She had just finished up her first year teaching. So it seems like even if her father had been violent, possibly in the past, clearly he was an alcoholic, had violent tendencies, that it had only really become a huge problem in the last year. Yeah, it sounds like it's escalated. Maybe she's getting older. Or... Well, that's the thing. I'm thinking, okay, well, when she was, you know, a kid and she's living under her parents' roof, that's one thing. But she's a woman of the world now. She's gone off to college. She's older, more mature. And she's had some experiences. So when she returns, she sees what her father is doing and she thinks, you know, I'm an adult. Like, how dare you tell me what to do? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm paying rent. You I'm know, keeping I'm, you guys up. I'm, I'm paying, uh, sounds like maybe a substantial amount of the bills in the home i mean for her to say it like that and um yeah i mean who are you supposed to be you know you need to cut that shit out and it sounds like he didn't care he didn't like that attitude and things were getting more violent maybe more frequent so yeah however its lawyer argued there was no way trigg's head wound was made by a shoe the defense proclaimed edith had acted in self-defense but the prosecution agreed that swaying jurors to believe it was likely a hatchet or a hammer used because they also felt like the shoe element was probably not going to win the jurors over. Well, yeah, down to the skull. I mean, that's a fairly significant wound. There was a river running a few feet behind the Maxwell home, and the prosecution speculated she had hit him with a hatchet or a hammer and then thrown the weapon into the water. Edith could have easily disposed of this murder weapon. However, physicians did testify that the head wounds could have come from a high heel shoe. Okay. So they did actually have a medical expert saying, no, if it was a shoe with a heel on it, very well could have cut down into the scalp. Okay. Which, I mean, if you think about a stiletto heel. Well, yeah. It's possible, right? Edith was found guilty by jury of her peers. But when I say peers, I mean 12 men. Yeah. On Well, I guess it was in November of 1935. Um, she's sentenced to prison, but that sentence ends up being overturned. There's a second trial. They also find her guilty a second time, and she's sentenced to 25 years in prison. She becomes known as the Slipper Slayer, a movie called The Trail of the Lonesome Pine, and a book of the same name were released which kind of made Appalachia seem like this exotic place to the rest of the world. People were intrigued by tales of family abuse, moonshining, feuds, hillbilly murders. Murderous women. Yeah, so they were eating this story up because this book had come out. People were loving it. Then this murder happens. It's like, oh, it's everything the book says. Appalachia's wild and crazy. In 1937, another movie that's loosely based on Edith is released, and it's called Mountain Justice. First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt appealed on behalf of Edith Maxwell, calling for her release. Women's suffrage groups and other like women's organizations took up her case. 
they raised money. They rallied around her. They wrote letters to the governor, to the parole board. Did it work? The Washington Post and Washington Herald solicited money for her defense fund and appeals. So there was a lot of talk in town that Anne had actually been the one to kill Trigg and that Edith was merely taking the rap for her mother. In December, uh, it was 1941, uh, Virginia Governor James Price pardons Edith. Wow. She's released from prison. Edith changed her name to Anne Grayson, and she moved to Jacksonville, Florida, where she ended up marrying a man named Otto Abshire, and he owned a fairly successful Indianapolis trucking company. She was employed 16 years as a constable deputy. Huh, that's pretty funny. Was a charter member of a church and also was a member of the Order of the Eastern Star. She was president of a business and professional women's club. She had two children, and she lived until she was 65. She passed away in 1979. Wow, I'm, I'm surprised. And if it wasn't for the efforts of all those organizations and groups, and the First Lady, very public declaration of her innocence and all that, she would have never got out. But I'm, I'm glad. I, I think, I, de- I don't know exactly what happened, but... I don't think it was malice or hate, you know, murder. I I think it was self-defense, definitely. Well, and I think that's why the First Lady, um, Eleanor Roosevelt, and these women's organizations really rallied around Edith because they felt like this was a girl who had suffered abuse at the hands of her father. He was an alcoholic. The entire family at some point had been subjected to his abuse. The three women are saying, hey, he basically attacked Edith and confirmed the story. You've got the neighbor seeing her half-dressed outside. I mean, it would make sense that there was a struggle. Yeah. You know? So I think they were just seeing this whole thing, and they realized that, you know, there's not a jury of peers. It's men. And they really pushed. They were trying to push also to get women um, to be jurors or to be allowed as jurors. Well, yeah. I mean, it's... um of course, they were taking that and, you know, using it to benefit their cause and stuff. But I'm sure they knew plenty of women who had been through similar things, similar circumstances, maybe not all the way up to, you know, someone dying, but just people not believing, authorities not supporting them or defending them again, you know. So, yeah. And it was a very public case. So I think it was a perfect one for them to fight for. So That's been the story of Edith Maxwell. Wow, Edith I'm sorry Edith had to go through that. You can hit subscribe, rate, and review us. We love those five-star reviews. Yes, and you can find us on uh, Facebook, Twitter, um, TikTok. Instagram. Instagram. I always forget that one. If you have a great story, you want to tell us something, give us a correction, some feedback, whatever, you can email us. What's the email address, Dylan? It's mountainmurderspodcast at gmail.com. We're typically pretty good about responding to messages, emails. Yeah, there's been a lot going on right now with both of us. So if we've been a bit slow on any of that, it's uh, not on purpose. And I will say we have some wonderful stories, more listener stories uh, that have been sent to us. And we're going to put another episode of that together very soon. Oh, yeah. We're going to have another listener's Oh, my God. Their stories are the shit. They're great. Again, if you have a listener story, it doesn't even have to be something scary or spooky. It could be it anything. It could be a drunk, st- drunk eating story. We, we don't just care. like funny stories. We like to hear your stories. We like to hear from our listeners. Mountain Murders Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks, guys. Mm-hmm.
amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. 